Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing Illumination's second Dr. Seuss adaptation, their version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, just titled The Grinch, as well as both The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from 2011 and the new reboot, cool, soft reboot sequel, uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web, plus J.J. Abrams' latest production, Overlord, plus a quick Netflix and chat about a couple of the things I've been watching on streaming lately. So, let's get started. Max? I'm promoting you. You will guide my sleigh tonight. <laughs> Did you teach him puppy eyes? thinking of probably rewatching uh Ron Howard's The Grinch for Christmas so I didn't do it this time but I do remember it a lot I've seen it enough times that I kind of have it committed to memory of sorts and my main problem with Ron Howard's version of The Grinch is that it's very cynical and mean-spirited it takes a what is a very wholesome story about uh of the villain kind of rede- being redeemed by the Christmas spirit by seeing it in action and it turns it into just a mean-spirited poke at everybody. Like, look, isn't capitalism terrible? Aren't we all just greedy during the holiday season? I mean, that, I mean that's not to say it's a it's, it's an invalid criticism, but it's very it takes away from the whole point of the Grinch, which is he hates Christmas. So why are you making us hate Christmas too? You know, like if you're depicting the worst parts of Christmas, why would we want it to be saved? So. I'm not mad that they redid the Grinch now but with Illumination at the helm. I do wish that it was somebody better. I wish somebody else had the keys to Dr. Seuss because Illumination has proven... Well, actually, every, uh, Fox has proven pretty much everybody had, besides like the old Chuck Jones adaptations from the 60s and 70s have proven that they don't get the Grinch. And the Illumination adaptation has proven to be, you know... In that same thing, it's not an exception to the rule. Um, yeah, the basic premise here is still the same. The Grinch is a miser who lives uh, in a cave above Whoville, and he hates Christmas, and he hates all the happiness and the joy that people feel from it. And then he, uh, you know, in he, in an attempt to kind of take away their joy and to kind of bring him some pe- bring himself some peace, because he feels like they, you know, they, his whole thing has always been. He hates the noise it brings. He hates all the clamor and the to do. He hates all the. He thinks it's he. It's not so. It's not strictly the commercialism, but he feels like all the who's care. You know, he definitely feels that the who's always you know share too much stuff and they make too much noise and they just they're just a bothersome bunch during Christmas. And he thinks that ah, if I take that away, then I can get some peace and I can show those who's what for that. Hey, you can't have Christmas now. I took it from you. And then it's t- and then by the time you know and then at the, by the end of it, he realizes that I I took all their stuff. Why why are they still celebrating Christmas? And then it's the realization that. The Grinch can't steal Christmas because Christmas isn't stuff. And I think both 
feature-length adaptations kind of miss that point. And they try to develop the story and give it new meaning. And Ron Howard is a more cynical, like, miserly approach towards Christmas in and of itself. And here it's... I mean, it gets the I mean, it, it it kind of misses the point of who the Grinch is. Um, while Jim Carrey's Grinch is kind of annoying, at least he got the point that the Grinch is nasty and ugly and hateful. Whereas this Grinch, it's just kind of a hipster. You know, he's like Christmas. I'm so happy. And better that Cumberbatch doesn't play him as hateful. He just kind of plays him as, like, just grumpy. He's like, he's, he's, he's no worse than Grumpy Dwarf or Donald Duck, you know? He's not, he's, he's not hateful. He's, why would he steal Christmas? There's no reason for him to really steal Christmas, because all he is is just kind of bothered by it. It's, it's, he, it doesn't, like, the, the reasoning they give for him this time is essentially the same as from the Ron Howard version, but it doesn't ultimately lead to anything. It's just kind of like trying to explain why the Grinch hates Christmas instead of the the overarching factor that he... It isn't specifically him. He doesn't want to be embraced and welcomed in. He doesn't want to be part of it. He thinks it's too much. He, that's why he left. I feel like every adaptation has kind of missed that. They try to make it like, oh, society shunned the Grinch in one way or another. And it's like, no, society didn't care about the it's, it's not the society be society cared one way or the other about the Grinch it's that the Grinch kind of hated society and he shut himself off of it he's a hermit he's he's by all you know by all accounts a hermit and it takes you know it, it, he kind of like hate watches the who celebrate Christmas and he decides eh, stupid who's in their Christmas I'll show them a thing or two and here it doesn't really amount like it, it kind of Illumination is a way of sanding off the edges to a story. With the Lorax, they took away all of the harsh environmental message and they took away the um, downer ending. Because the whole point of the ending of the Lorax was you, you, there's no guarantee. Unless you put in the effort, there is no guarantee for a happy ending. That was the whole point. Even in the 70s, Dr. Seuss understood that you need to put in the effort in order to make a better tomorrow. He got that 40 years ago. Meanwhile, you've got, you've got this thing where it's like, oh yeah, shiny happy ending, everyone sings a song and the trees are back, yay! But nah, it, it, once again, it kind of misses the point in order to throw in extra stuff that detracts from the story in and of itself. And here... It kind of it does the same thing. It, it's it's much less cloying and in in spite of the story. The Lorax is very much telling the story in spite of the actual morals and the lessons. It it, it kind of does away with everything that worked about the original Lorax story in order to make its own re lesser thing. Here it captures the Grinch for the most part, but it's a lesser Grinch. Like the whole, there's a you know they keep the line about him having termites in his smile, and yet his teeth are perfectly kept and taken care of because he has all the same teeth of everyone else in Whoville. Like you can even see in the trailer, like he's got perfectly straight pearly whites. Where's the termites in his smile? Like where's the ain't where's the onion breath? Where's the nastiness? None of it's there because they don't want to go off model. They literally keep the same model and then just recolor it because Illumination's that cheap. And 
I, I think that's the problem is that people are still willing to flock to it because they don't pay attention to those kinds of things. They don't mind the cheapness of it because they'll get something else out of it. But it's really cheap animation. And by giving Illumination so much... Like, they're taking control of DreamWorks now. And that can only end poorly because DreamWorks, for all their foibles, at least put effort into character design and animation and trying to tell unique stories for the most part, even if they don't work. They at least they at least have an identity. Illumination doesn't have an identity besides like compared to this, Disney is a wizard and Pixar is an equally powerful sorcerer, if not more so powerful. And then DreamWorks was like uh, a Harry Potter style wizard where they're powerful. They're like Neville Longbottom. They're powerful but they're not like per they you know, they they'll trip up over themselves for the most part. By that logic, um Illumination is is Job from you know, in this metaphor, you've got, like, um, so, yeah, Disney is, say, Merlin, and uh, Pixar is, like, Gandalf, and um, and DreamWorks would be, like, Neville Longbottom or something like that, and then Illumination is Job from uh, Arrested Development. He is cheap. And he is, un, you know, he is he's cynical, and he he's cynical in his nature, and he does things on the cheap, and he doesn't really care about his craft. He cares about screwing people over. And I'm not saying Illumination is that nasty in their mindset, but they definitely don't care about the quality of their product. They don't care. They don't have that magic within them, and it shows in everything they've made. Despicable Me took what was an interesting premise and did nothing that... He didn't do all that much with it. And then every iteration of the story that continued watered down their entire... You know, the entire franchise that they created and made and became a phenomenon. And then everything else Illumination has done has been on the cheap and it looks... Everything looks recycled. It looks like they recycle... It's, it's, it's like a digital version of the Xerox days at Disney. If those for those who follow Disney animation, you'll know this. But for those who don't, um, after Walt Disney died in 1963, I want to say uh, right around you know 1963, 1965, somewhere it was around the time that the Jungle Book came out. After the Jungle Book, uh, he died during the production of the Jungle Book, and you could already tell that they were recycling cells because you can see clearly in the Jungle Book they recycled Bambi's mom. They recycled a cell animation uh, from Bambi. And then after, as soon as, as, as the next one after that, I think was the Aristocats. And as soon as that came out, it was clear that they were already recycling animation. And then they recycled stuff for, or either it was Robin Hood, and they were recycling stuff from the Jungle Book for Robin Hood. And then they recycled stuff from Robin Hood for um, the Aristocats. And so they continued to, re they recycled uh, something from the Jungle Book, for, specifically for the Sword in the Stone as well. Uh, the dog licking scene, where the wolves lick Mowgli, they recolored it so that it was the dogs licking Arthur. And so you had Disney cutting corners by recycling these cells of animation, and Illumination does the exact same thing with their character models. Their character models are cut and paste for everything. That's why people who pay attention to animation will always point out to you, when you watch the backgrounds for Illumination movies, you will see the same character pop up in the same scene at different points, because they literally cut and paste. There's that little effort put into it. And... It's not the animator's fault. I do blame the company because in order to cut corners, they make a lesser product. And it may make money now. 
but I don't see people coming back to Illumination movies like they do with Disney. There's not going to be an Illumination vault because as soon as people, the only people who are really going to come back to this are like kids 20 years from now who think, oh yeah, I kind of remember Despicable Me. But they'll probably give. But then by that point, they'll have been turned away from the franchise because it stopped being good for them. And they there's such a, there's no real quality control. Whereas at Disney and to a less, you know to not so much of an extent anymore. But at Pixar, still, I mean, there is still some semblance of quality control going on over there. And that's why the animation departments over there are, are tend to de- deliver even lesser Pixar films are still better than did like Finding Dory was not a great story. But it was still a wonderfully animated movie, and there's a lot of effort put into gorgeous-looking animation. Uh, Monsters University was also another one of those stories where the where, you know the story is recycled, but the animation is new and crisp and looks good. So they'll put the effort into their animation, even if it's not always in the storytelling. Disney after. Um, after uh, Chicken Little did the same thing for their computer animation department, and even when they did dabble into 2D animation again, it they put the effort in the animation, even if it wasn't always in the story. Here, there's no effort in the story or the animation, and it always looks cheap. That's why I never really cared much for Illumination, and this is, you know, this isn't any different. So, uh, and then of course you got the addition of Every Illumination movie has to have cute animal sidekicks. So they have Max, who looks like he was cut and paste from The Secret Life of Pets. And then you've got this fat reindeer character who looks like a cow. I assumed it was a cow or a buffalo or something, because it doesn't look like a reindeer. It has it rese- doesn't resemble a reindeer in any capacity. That's why I thought that was going to be the joke, is that he's not really a reindeer. It's a cow that thinks it's a reindeer or something, but they didn't even go that far. So they have this fat reindeer who's just there to do sight gags and be silly. And then leaves in the second act and then comes back at the tail end and then does nothing. It's such a superfluous character that they literally had nothing to do for it. So they cut it out of the movie until they decide to bring it back at the last second. Ugh. So yeah. Um, this is. Not, I think most people have kind of realized that are you know above a certain age that this isn't going to be a good movie. But you know what? If kids are having a good time, fine. You know, I'm not going to detract from you or your kids if you enjoy this movie. Have, you know, if this is your definitive Grinch, okay, mine is still going to be the Chuck Jones version because I think that one nails the story perfectly. But if this this if this does something for you, then I'm not going to detract that from you. It's just something I'm, I have no interest in ever seeing again. Just put sun on Someone always has to carry the pain. Now it's your turn, sister. It's her. She's been behind all of this. Whatever she's planning, it's bigger than just you. I know what she's capable of. We're running out of time. Now the world will burn. And everyone will know. It was you who lit the match. What, you thought she didn't have a plan? Man, it almost took a decade for this one to come out. So yeah, we have a... It's a... I say rebootquel at points, and I don't think I said it on the podcast, but I said that in my social media. Um, 
Yes, it essentially because it's kind of a soft reboot, but it's still technically in continuity with the original 2011 David Fincher movie. It's just they try they're trying to do it again. They're trying to do a new iteration of it, but still keep it. It's not like I mentioned. It's it's more like it's not a full on flashpoint event. It's more along the lines of a DC rebirth or uh, the Marvel sort of number new number one initiative, where that's not a it's not a full universal restart. It's more of a let's let's kind of let's kind of clear slate and you know take it from here. You know, it's more like how Disney uh, cleared out the expanded universe to kind of clear the slate for future installments in the movies and TV shows. So, uh, yeah, that's what we got here with the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I got a bone to pick with the with the advertising, but I'll get to that with the with the new one. Um, I rewatched the old one. Uh, it's a long one. It's two and a half hours long. It's a it's a and not only is it long, it's also really um hard to watch especially in especially now like this was this really tapped into the me too era but despite the fact that it was i want to say like six years maybe seven years beforehand and yeah it, it it deals heavily with um assault and rape and it's it's a hard hard movie to watch if in that regard so i don't begrudge anybody for not being into it but for me personally it's a i think it captures the book for what it's worth for the most part very well um and for those who don't remember the premise is you have michael blomqvist who is a journalist for a magazine in in set that uh this is also in sweden uh, Mikhail is a journalist who gets, um, who gets, um, kind of, what's the term for it? Uh, embarrassed, not embarrassed, but like ruined. He gets his entire, um, his entire reputation is, is ruined because he attempted to bring down a, a, cor- you know, a very powerful corporate magnate. And in doing so, he, he missed some, some details and he was able to be, um, sued for libel and, uh, he's, he was found guilty, and he was, and he's now technically a criminal. Uh, not a, not like a, more of a blue collar criminal. He's, he's, a, he's a convicted criminal in the sense that he's been convicted of libel, but he didn't have to serve jail time. And so, in his shame, he's, he's kind of uh, outs, outs himself from the, from the editorial and management of the paper of the magazine in order to kind of give them some space and not bring any more uh, heat on them after what after he screwed up. And meanwhile, um, Christopher Plummer comes in. Uh, you got um, Mikhail Blomkvist played here by Daniel Craig, like right as uh, his bond is starting to kick in. So this is like peak bond Daniel Craig. Right before Skyfall came out, and uh, Christopher Plummer is an absolute treasure. He plays this aging uh, head of this wealthy family in Sweden. Although I think they might be German, they speak in German at points. They use like Herr, and they have Germanic names. And there's you know there's a history of Nazism in their family, so it's hard to say how much of them is German, how much is is native Swedish. But at any rate, um, you know, Christopher Plummer's the head of this family, and he recruits Mikhail 
to essentially solve the mystery of a family mystery that has been unsolved for almost 40 years, if not, uh, let's see, 60, so, like, yeah, going on 40, 50 years, uh, in which he, one of his niece, grandnieces or granddaughters is um, goes missing, and he assumed somebody murdered her, so he wants Mikhail to find the murderer. And so he he goes up to up, uh, you know, very to the to a more northern part of Sweden, where uh, to like an it's it's a, it's an, it's on an island off the coast of Sweden, kind of like uh, Puget Sound in uh, Boston. But uh, I think Puget Sound's whatever the uh, Chappaquiddick, you know, the whole Chappaquiddick area, something like that. It's essentially something like that, but in Sweden. And Mikhail is researching all this, and meanwhile, starting to unravel the darker secrets of this family, and having trouble, you know, figuring out who exactly this, you know, who exactly the murderer could be, because he's finding, you know, coming across, uh, you know, roadblocks along the way. And as that's going on, we also see um, the woman who investigated Mik- uh, Mikhail for uh, for Christopher Plummer's character, uh, Lisbeth Salander, who is played here by Rooney Mara. And she, it's exactly how I picture Lisbeth Salander. She's not, she's almost alien in appearance. Like, she has no eyebrows, and, you know, she's kind of got the mohawk hair. Uh, she has, you know, these different... Uh, piercings, both in her ear, her nose, her eyebrow. She's essentially made herself, uh, d- you know, outwardly unattractive to put, to turn away, you know, would-be um, assaulters and rapists and you know, assholes. And so she is, she is under, you know, she is, she's being taken advantage of both, both emotionally and physically. Like she is getting. Um, me too, essentially, by the by her case manager, uh, who works for the Swedish government, because she's a ward of the state, because she's been considered violent and dangerous and incapable of functioning, and so she she starts to suffer abuse from this guy, and essentially turns it back on him, and then um, manages to kind of gain her freedom back. And once she does that, Mikhail kind of hits a hits a roadblock and wants to recruit Elizabeth. Uh, to to help him solve the case, and it's a sweet, it's kind of cool scene where he finds Elizabeth. Uh, she had just finished having uh, a, you know having a night out with a girl, uh, and and Mikhail kind of knocks on the door and is like, "Hey, look, I brought you some breakfast. Um, I'll let you take care of that, and then I want to discuss something with you." And he offers, says, "Hey, look, you like to take down." Um, you know, you like you like cases that interest you. I've got a murder mystery that deals with rape and Nazis. Do you want you know Do you want to help me solve this mystery? And she's kind of, and then she's all in on it. And the two of them kind of work together to try and figure out what it is that yeah, that happened forty uh, some odd years ago to this girl and where she ended up. And so, uh, in doing so, they actually uncover a serial killer within the family and. It ultimately lead to a climactic scene with what with that family member and then and then even after that it ha, they have to figure out you know they they do eventually uh solve the mystery of what happened to the girl uh 40 years ago and it, it all kind of ends on a happy note and then there's a bit of an epilogue where Elizabeth helps um helps Mikhail bring down the 
the uh, cor- uh, you know the corporate executive who you know who ruined his career and by ruining his career <laughs> and uh, you know kind of ta- you know kind of exposing him for what he was and and then it kind of ends on a, on a more melancholy note but that ties more into, that ties into this added subplot of like Elizabeth was trying to kind trying to forge a relationship like a like a like a romance between her and Mikhail. And I've never liked that aspect. I don't know if it's in the books. I, I know it was left. I think it was left out of the first uh, Swedish movie because I don't remember it at all. I, it felt like an addition from the American aspect because, God forbid, you just have a guy and a girl who just you know care about each other platonically. They don't need to you know want to hook up. I don't know, but I will say that the Fincher movie is has a great cast. You've got. Um, uh, Daniel Craig as Blomquist, who works great. Robin Wright is his sort of lover uh, slash editor who works at the Millennium, who was in charge of Millennium, and she looks a bit older than I remember her looking because she looks I I don't like she looks older than her than than I remember her being, especially since it was seven years ago. I don't remember her looking. I think they made they kind of made her down to make her look a little bit slightly older. Or something like that, but she, you know, but hey, it's two, you know, two uh, middle-aged, you know, journalists having this affair, and you were I, and she works great in the movie uh, for however long she's in there, and then uh, Christopher Plummer is an absolute treasure; he's amazing, and Rudy Mara is, I think, on par with Numira Pace in terms of en- encapsulating Lisbeth Salander on film. I think they work both work phenomenally. And then the way it plays out, um, uh, Peter Sk- Peter Skarsgård it plays one of the family members uh, that he's investigating, and he uh, he works great. I think he could have easily played Blumfist as well, but I think they went for a more handsome, which is a very American thing to do. But you know, um, I think I, but, but he works great for the role he's in. Uh, I did you know you definitely notice Lisbeth is non neurotypical. She's not specifically one thing or the other. You know, she's not autistic. She's not ADHD. She's not uh, obsessive compulsive. But there are symptoms of something there, but they just never address what specifically it is. Um, also, like you know, the punk appearance. She looked. You know, she as she perfectly embodies punk in her appearance. And yeah, um, it also brings up an interesting thing, like how much abuse happens within the Swedish ward system. Like, how you know, it's the same thing with, like, abuse in the foster care system in America. You have to con- continually keep a track on these organizations or else they'll get away with stuff. And, the, you know, the, there's stuff like this happening in all kinds of organizations, both governmental and non-governmental. Um, I, I also love the fact that Elizabeth essentially is the punisher for women. She doesn't kill her victims, but she she basically humiliates them and 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 punishes them herself without killing them. I think she is a more uh, I think she's almost a better Punisher than Frank Castle personally because I think I feel like the pu- Punisher doesn't really he death isn't so much a punishment, but I think it, it that kind of plays up the fact that he's punishing people by killing them. He, uh, I think Elizabeth Salander is more of a what you would imagine a Punisher to be. You don't need to kill somebody to punish them. You, you know, you can, you know, degrade them and humiliate them and tear them down to fully punish them. I think that works better. Uh, and yeah, the romance aspect is the only thing I didn't really like. Otherwise, this is a phenomenal movie. It's just not one that I can rewatch uh, at all because oof, oof, it is, 
it's rough. It's a rough one to watch. It is hard to watch, especially in the in the Me Too era. It's it's a it's a it's it's a harsh. It's it's a harsh movie. Thankfully, uh, the girl in the spider's web. Much like Illumination did to the Grinch, uh, the girl in the spider's web filmmakers decided to sand off all of the edges and essentially make a PG-13 movie. I think it's technically R-rated because they say F-bombs in there. Wait a minute, hold on. You know what? I'm going to double check. I'm calling it here. I th- I'm pretty sure Girl in the Spider's Web is PG-13 because it does not feel like an R-rated movie. Let's find out. Also, the full title is The Girl in the Spider's Web, A New Dragon Tattoo Story. It is technically R-rated. It's just written like a PG-13 movie and, and edited like a PG-13 movie. Um... Yeah, while the R rating in Dragon with the Dragon Tattoo was was earned because there's full frontal nudity, there's sex, there's violence, there's blood, there's you know you know there's all these you know there's there's Nazi sort of torture. Here, it, it it's a PG thirteen movie with some f bombs in it. Like what what earned the R rating? What the one scene where she hooks up with a girl? That's it. There's nothing in this movie that warrants an R rating. So I don't get where the R rating comes from. And then, uh, yeah, the the title, A New Dragon Tattoo Story. It's the Millennium Series. The actual title of the book is the Millennium Series. I get that people who don't read books aren't going to get that, but you, that subtitle makes no damn sense because it's not called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Series. It's called the Millennium Series. What the hell, Sony? Anyway... This movie, this movie's got more problems than bad uh, marketing and bad uh, subtitling, because uh, from what I can tell, the book, uh, which is the first one not written by Stieg Larsson, who sadly took his own life before the three books were published, they kind of they published them posthumously. This is the first one in the in this in the book series that was not written by him, and apparently they just completely dumped anything that was in the book version and did something more stupid instead because this is Elizabeth Salander if instead of being a dark uh, cyber noir thriller it was Jason Bourne this is literally a Jason Bourne movie and there I mean like there are elements of Bond in it but it's specifically a Jason Bourne movie you cannot convince me that this wasn't a script for Jason Bourne that they put the dr- girl with the dragon tattoo in instead because this plays out as exactly like a Jason Bourne movie would. It is that it is that out of place from the rest of the franchise. I mean, for one thing, no offense to Claire Foy, she's actually too attractive for Elizabeth Salander. Like that's a whole, there's a line dropped by uh, in this in this story. Uh, they introduce a twin sister who they never really specify if it's a fraternal twin or a identical twin, so I'm not quite sure if it shouldn't be the same actress or not. The books don't either. Nobody actually talks about what kind of twin. It's just, oh, twin sister. What kind of twin? There are two kinds of twins. Is it fraternal or is it, is it, or is it identical? They don't, they don't spe- nobody specifies, nobody specified in the Google search, what the hell? Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's more of my own understanding. Like, what kind of twin are we talking about? Why is nobody mentioning what kind of twins they are? Um, and th- but yeah, here Claire Foy is, I think, personally too attractive. Maybe, but that's the thing. Rudy Moore is also very attractive. So is Numi Rapace. Those two women are very attractive w- w- women who they pulled the 
Charlize Theron and Monster and uglied up. They they shaved off Rudy Mara's eyebrows and they put in these piercings and they made her look unattract you know phys, you know conventionally unattractive. All they did with Claire Foy was send her to a hot topic and say, "Hey, or pick out some hair gel and some stuff. Pick out a couple of black t-shirts and a leather jacket. Now you're punk. Now you're punk." You know, it's the Hot Topic version of punk, whereas Numera Pace and Rooney Mara are like full-on CBGB punk. Ugh. It's awful. And there's a line that Camilla drops in this movie who looks more like what I expect Elizabeth Salander to look like facially, at least. Like, I could imagine uh, the girl, Sylvia Hoex is her name, uh... I think she would have better fit physically, like if they gave her the punk look. I think the way I think the way she looks makes a better appearance for what I imagine Elizabeth Salander to look like, not Claire Foy. Claire Foy looks way too conventionally attractive, and there's even a line where it's like, Oh, Elizabeth, why do you make yourself so ugly? Are you seeing this are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because I don't know who thinks that's ugly. That's not ugly. That is not... A, it's like the whole thing with Beastly, where it's like Alex Pettifer got tattoo, got tribal tattoos on him, and now he's ugly. I mean, tribal tattoos are stupid on white people, but that's not why he's ugly. In fact, he's not ugly in that movie. He is the opposite of ugly in that movie. Why do you people not understand how ugly works? It's, you know, it's like the whole thing of like Spongebob being like, I'm ugly and I'm proud. I'm ugly and I am proud. You're not ugly. You're, that's not what ugly looks like. Ugh. God, this movie. So yeah, uh, on top of a you know a woman who does not ultimately look like Lisbeth Salander, is a much more attractive like cosplayer version of Lisbeth Salander. Like where we gotta make you know, or it's like somebody's drawing of Lisbeth Salander where it's like, yeah, but actual Lisbeth Salander is too ugly. I need to make her look you know bangable. Ugh. Uh, yeah, nothing against Claire Foy because I don't think that's her fault. You know why? Because they aged down Mikhail Blomquist and uh, Robin Wright's character. Uh, what's her name? Uh, yeah, let me see. Girl the Dragon Tattoo. What did Robin Wright's care? What is her name in this? Erica Berger. Yeah. Uh, they aged down both Mikhail and Erica in this movie to be basically like five years older than Claire Foy. Like, here's the thing. They establish that Lisbeth is 23 in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And they also establish that in the same continuity, this movie takes place three years into the future. So essentially, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo happened then, The Girl Who, girl who Played with Fire, and then The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. That was a... that, And then by now, it's been three years later. And here... Mikhail is played by an actor who is literally five years older than Claire Foy. So, Lisbeth is 26. Mikhail, in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is played by a man in his 40s. As is Erica Berger. She's played by a woman who is at least in her 40s. These are two middle-aged women at, you know, at, at, at about twice Lisbeth's age. So why do they look like they went to high school together? What the hell, movie? This... Is, this is like a CW casting where it's like, we have to make everybody young and hot. Everybody has to be young and hot. Everybody has to be bangable. We want to make all of the all of the shipping happen, so everybody has to be pretty and perfect looking. Everybody has to be models. Ugh. It's the worst. I hate it. Like, 
the, 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 the all of the edges, all of the sharpness and the and the and the harshness that was part of Fincher's version and even the books is gone. It's all sanded down into nice, smooth, easily digestible edges, and it's the worst. Ugh. Anyway, I bring up I brought up Jason Bourne because it is Jason Bourne. The action sequences are like a badly edited Jason Bourne sequence. You know, chase sequences and fight sequences. They all feel like something out of Jason Bourne. They don't feel like anything out of the actual. Like that's the whole thing with the girl with the dragon tattoo is that it was a thriller it was a noir it was there was danger and intrigue and you know people were shot at it people were and people had to fight but it wasn't well choreographed it wasn't these whole elaborate chase sequences this is a spy movie now it is not a thriller all of the cool thriller aspects of it are gone because they want to make jason Bourne. And I don't get whose idea this was. Because that is completely mis... Way to go! Sony, just like Illumination did with the Grinch, you've completely missed the point. <sighs> so on top of all that, uh, you've also got Stephen Merchant in here as this former NSA uh, contractor who has devised a, um, an algorithm, essentially a program, to hack into... Each country's nuclear arsenal simultaneously. I don't even know if that's possible because I swear that part of the nuclear arsenal is actually outdated and doesn't have access to computers. So I think once again that that's th once again this is where the Bond aspect comes in because now it's a Bond movie. I don't know how it played in the book, but this is literally a Bond movie plot. This is literally a Bond movie plot. Uh, but the thing is, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from 2011 had a, had a full-on Bond opening. And this one has a worse Bond opening. This, like, the Bond opening from uh, the last movie was, in, uh, is, was like Goldfinger's Bond opening. This is like Never Say Never Again's Bond opening. <laughs> uh, it's so bad. Um, but Stephen Merchant has a son who in the book is, is, is described as being on the autism spectrum. He is autistic. And in the movie... He is Hollywood autistic in that he's autistic when it, Matt, when it counts, but when, it, when nobody's paying attention, he's normal. And that's the thing. Being somebody who is on the spectrum, I pay attention to these sorts of things. People who are on the spectrum have certain symptoms, certain, per, certain personality quirks, certain traits. And Hollywood autism never seems to capture that. What was the last movie? Predator. Predator had a kid who had Asperger's, and the kid would only, there was only, the, only the opening scene with the kid actually felt like something that people who are on the spectrum go through. Everything else, the kid had no, the only reason he was on the spectrum was so he can do magic. And that's what happens here. He, the kid is the, is the only one who can solve the password to... And it's not even solving the password. He, all he, I don't, it sounds like he's only giving one... I don't know if it's multiple changing passwords that he has to enter because the whole password resets thing. Because the password will reset and they'll give a new prompt. But they never explain how the kid was able to answer the question in order to make the numbers come out in order to open the program. But in the book, it was established that the, that the programmer... Uh, father devised the program in order to work like his kid. You know, the password system is only can, can only be accessed by somebody who thinks like his son can. 
And they try to do that here, but it never established how that works. They don't really break... They try to break down how he answers the question in a way that makes sense, but it's brushed under the rug because he mumbles it. Uh, This is how... Math. Am I weird? Am I broken? That's another thing, too, because... Oh, yeah, everybody who's on the spectrum wonders if they're broken. (sighs) The smoothie. (sighs) So, yeah. And, of course, the final confrontation is completely contrived and doesn't make any sense. Everything, everything, the only reason things happen in this movie is to propel the plot forward. It doesn't make any logical sense. It is literally just, you know, because, like, one of the opening scenes is... Uh, Elizabeth is attacked by the Spiders, which is the syndicate her sister's in charge of. Spoiler alert, who cares? Um, And she is uh, attacked, and they set off a bomb in her apartment. And she is in a safe room that takes no damage from the explosion, even with the door open. But for some reason, she leaves the safe room and goes in to see the bomb, then runs away and hides in the bathtub because thankfully she didn't drain the tub. But it was cool to look at, wasn't it? If you're going to do these kind of... Like, if you're going to make her jump in the tub, why would you give her a safe room? And why would you make her go into the safe room and then leave the safe room? This movie. So stupid. And and I think that's the worst part is that this movie is so stupid, but the source material is genuinely good. So, nah. Just go back. Watch the Fincher version if you have the stomach for it. Maybe go check out the... um, I think this, the Swedish the Swedish versions are all on Shutter now. You can check those out, but don't watch this. Don't watch this. This isn't Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This isn't the Millennium series. This is a a wannabe Jason Bourne movie. Don't support this garbage. What is this? A thousand year army. These thousand year soldiers. What do you do with those people? I'm not even going to front. This is the pick of the week. This is straight up the pick of the week. Because compared to Illumination's generic cut and paste animation and the girl with the spider, the girl in the spider web, complete debacling of debacling, like that's the word, but complete um, debacle and in trying to adapt uh, from the book, from a very intelligent book series to make essentially a wannabe Jason Bourne movie here. We got somebody who's not trying too hard and nails everything that they are trying to do. 
Because that's the thing. This isn't trying to be great art. This is an exploitation movie. This is a straight-up exploitation, Nazi-killing movie. And sometimes you just want a movie where you get to see Nazis' heads blown off and shot and eviscerated and tortured. You know? Sometimes you just want to see Nazis get what's coming to them. And that's what we get here. Uh, it's a very it's very Wolfenstein uh, in a way, because what we've got here is a supernatural sort of horror movie set during World War II where Americans go behind enemy lines in France to to essentially disable a tr- a jammer and to allow for air support during the D-Day invasion. And so you've got this team of uh, soldiers, played by all, everybody here is relatively new uh, coming in. Because, I mean, the, the one name I recognized... Um, and not even his name, I recognize, but I recognized what we was in uh, was Jovan Adepo, who plays the son, um, like the son who goes, who go, oddly enough, he becomes a soldier in, uh, Fences, but he, yeah, he's the older son from Fences, Corey, and he's been featured in The Leftovers, and he was somebody in Mother, Mother, and he's also on, uh, John Clan, uh, Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, and the show called Sorry for Your Loss, which I'm not familiar with. But yeah, he plays the main character here. Kind of reminds me of John Boyega in a sense. Uh, not, the, not, you know, mainly uh, the sweatiness in their first appearance. And the, but the fact that they both really do, they both do really well carrying uh, the carrying a franchise and uh, playing these sorts of um, heroes with a lot put on them and facing this insurmountable, insurmountable evil. And uh, Wyatt Russell plays the sort of badass uh, corporal who takes charge of the survivor. Because uh, basically, what happens is they fly into fr- fly over France, get shot down, and there's only like a handful of survivors from like the thirty or so men that were in the plane. And you've got uh, Wyatt Russell, who is mainly known for "Everybody Wants Some" or "Everybody Wants Some." Two exclamation points for that one. And uh, 22 Jump Street and a, and a Kurt Russell movie called Soldier from 1998. That's on his known for. Uh, he, but he, uh, you might also recognize him as Ezra O'Keefe and Ingrid Goes West. And um, The Walking Dead webisodes. Oof. Uh, what We Are, What We Are. Not sure what that is. This is 40. So he's, he's still on the rise as well. Uh, he plays the sort. He kind of reminds me of Boyd Holbrook in a way. I, that, I, I started to confuse him for Boyd Holbrook, um, and he he does a great job as a sort of uh, the guy who's seen some stuff and he's and he's you know hard hardened by the war and he just wants to get the job done. That kind of um, that you know that kind of uh, commander, and he's so he's. Um, I'm trying to. Th- I'm, I'm just going through the IMDb to try and figure out if I know any of these people from something. Um, this is literally uh, Matilda Olivier. Uh, she's a French actress, and this is her third movie. Uh, first one was a uh, was a short movie where she played her, um, whatever that means, and then something called The Misfortunes of Francois Jane, Jean Jane, J A N E, but it's Francois. And she plays Charlotte in that, and so this is her first real like feature film. And then, but she's also going to be in a couple stuff coming up. Like she's going to be in a female-driven World War II spy thriller, something called Boss Level, and then The Pleasure of Your Presence. So she's about to hit big. It looks like, hopefully, um, she plays the sort of love interest for uh, Giovanna Depo, Giovanna Depo's character, 
and the kind of the French resistance fighter uh, who helps them out. P, uh, Pilo, P-I-L-O-U, Osbeck, Osbeck, A-S-B-A, uh, combined A-E-K. Uh, he's a Danish actor, and he plays the main villainous Nazi. He's known, he's Greyjoy from Game of Thrones. You're on Greyjoy. And then he played Batu in Ghost in the Shell. So, get, so, I, apparently, um, you know, I may not recognize a bunch of people that, yeah, you, there's, we've got a, uh, Game of Thrones actor in here uh, as the villain, and he, he's a phenomenal villain, by the way, especially towards the end. Uh, John Magaro plays uh, sort of the smart aleck, uh, you know, kind of like, hey, we're, we're, he kind of sounds like he's from Jersey uh, in the movie, so he's, he comes off like, hey, what, what, forget about it, what's, you know, he's, he's one of those smart aleck kind of, uh, either Brooklyn or Jersey Kind of guys. Um, he's known for Carol, The Big Short, and Liberal Arts. Um, he's also appeared in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, oddly enough. Uh, then he was in Marshall as Erwin Friedman, whoever that is. Uh, he is Vince Muccio in Orange is the New Black. So once again, you may recognize these people more than I did. I did not recognize a single one. Of oh my god, he's from Akron! Sorry, uh, I just got excited because... Monroe Falls! My dude! My dude! My dude! Homeboy done good! Yeah! Woo! I was going to have to watch him extra hard. I love watching homeboys uh, do good. Um, I'm the... What is it? Kastiker? 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 Um, he's a Scottish actor uh, who is best known as Leo Fitz from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I'm so far behind. Okay, this is... Okay, I didn't recognize him at all. Yeah, so the fits from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. God, it's been so long since I watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I completely didn't recognize him. Uh, he plays the uh, a photographer who kind of is a war correspondent the whole time. And the only other ones that really stand out are... Um, I don't remember Dawson. Uh, but Rosen, Rosenfeld is kind of this scrawny uh, Jewish soldier who... Uh, who kind of who kind of helps them? Uh, kind of plays into the uh, the what's going on in the background of the you know, during the the German uh, experimentation and whatnot. He's um, apparently Valentine Logue on the King's Speech, and then he's on the In Betweeners. So, uh, and then he was a he was one of the students uh, in um, Les Misérables who uh, fought in the Resistance. So. Dominic Applewhite is the actor's name, uh, who plays Rosenfeld. And then I don't... Maybe the actor, Jacob Anderson, will uh, jog my memory. Oh my god, there's another dream of... Okay! Hey! It's Grey Worm! Raleigh Ritchie! From Game Grumps! I mean, from Game of Thrones. Uh, So yeah, apparently he's in this as Dawson. Dawson. Who the hell was Dawson? I don't recognize that name at all. Because, let me think. Because, yeah, it was Ford, uh, Tibbet, Chase, Rosenfeld, Boyce. I don't know who Dawson was. Uh, was oh, uh, Dawson was the the commander at the, at the start of the movie. So, so, yeah, Jacob Anderson is literally in the movie for a scene and then he's gone. <laughs> Not to spoil too much, but... 
you know, just so you know, there's a bunch. So yeah, we got a bunch of Game of Thrones actors. We got somebody from a lot of TV actors, but they've they're all phenomenal in this movie. And I, I once again, I everybody in this movie, I want to pay attention to. The actors, I think, are going to do great things in movies. Apparently, they're all from TV, and I don't watch enough TV to to know. Uh, the director, Julius Avery, this is his first American production. Uh, he's better known for Australian movies, apparently. Um, Son of a Gun, Jerry Can, Yardbird, never heard of any of these. He's tasked with doing Flash Gordon after this. And I think he he's able to handle exploitation, clearly. So it's interesting. We'll see how he does with um, with a, a, a sort of campy property like Flash Gordon. And then Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith were the screenwriters. Uh, Billy Ray, known for Captain Phillips, Shattered Glass. Ooh, Shattered Glass. Secret in Their Eyes, The Hunger Games. Really? Uh, apparently he's also tasked with Don Quixote and Sinatra. So, neato. Doing the Terminator reboot as well. So, this guy's a solid... Billy Ray's a great writer. And then, um... Martin L- Mark L. Smith. Uh, did... Ooh, The Revenant. Vacancy. Uh, seance. Whatever that is. But yeah. Uh, Martyrs. The Hole. Uh... So this guy's a he's a good horror actor. He does great, you know, The Revenant clearly, which would just take it from true story. I mean, he's so we've got two great uh, writers working on this script, and the only other one I was interested in was the effects person because that's the thing. This movie has effects worthy of Tom Savini himself. In fact, if it turns out that Tom Savini is in charge of makeup and um, effects. Special effects makeup artist, prosthetics effects technician. I'm not seeing who is in char- hair and makeup concept artist, key prosthetic makeup artist, Duncan Jarman. So yeah, it's all newcomers. I don't, but yeah, who, all the people on this movie who worked with the prosthetics and the makeup, phenomenal. Every, all of the, this is why practical trumps uh, CGI. They probably did some CGI touch up, but all of the practical effects in this movie. Look amazing, especially since they were dealing with like experimentation and body uh, body modification and all kinds of you know horrible torturous stuff. It's it's wonderful. This is this feels like a Savini era sort of B exploitation horror movie, and it's all kinds of wonderful. The only real criticism I have is that it goes on a bit too long. Because it kind of overstates its welcome. And that's only... And once again, it's only 90 some odd... It's only about 100 minutes. But here's my thing. Exploitation works when you go in, you do your thing, and you get out. You don't drag your feet. And there are points where this movie kind of dragged its feet. And especially in the middle, it kind of reaches a slow point. It kind of drags its feet, getting to where it wants to go. And I feel like if it cut that short... And it focused just on doing what it wanted to do, and not kind of dragging its feet, not really doing much of anything. It would have it would have worked even better. For what it's worth, it, this is a wonderful. Like p- people aren't really getting into it. It's kind of middling for critics. This is this is the Nazi exploitation movie for the next generation. This is exactly what we need right now. We need American soldiers punching and beating the crap out of and killing Nazis. Yeah, baby. Uh, so yeah, Overlord is my pick of the week. It is the one I would watch again out of the 
two things I watched in, out of everything I watched in theaters. And it's the ones I wanted to go back to. It's not going to end up on my best of list for the year just because there's so much good stuff that came out this year. But it's one that I will go back and rewatch again at some point because great effects. Uh, uh, the last 20 minutes of this movie are worth the price of admission. And, you know, like, there is a bit of a, you know, like, it's, okay, um, Jacob Anderson, you know, is a sort of, uh, Black, black uh, captain of the, you know, or commander of the of this diverse group of, you know, white with some black and you know Jewish and you know other probably some Hispanic, you know, like hey, this is very progressive for 1941. Oof. So yeah, it kind of it's 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 something you're gonna have to deal with. It's not historically accurate. It isn't trying to be historically accurate. It's trying to make a fun Nazi exploitation horror. You know, blood fest, and it gives us exactly what we want: blood, viscera, crazy effects, great fight sequences. All of it is phenomenal. This is this is a straight up B movie, and it, it, I highly recommend you check it out when you get the chance. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. I'm going to try to keep this short because I've talked about, talked about, about, at length about the other stuff in theaters, but I did check out some new stuff. Mostly I've been watching uh, YouTube stuff for the last month or so, so I haven't really been catching up. Like, this weekend Outlaw King came out and I didn't get a chance to see it on Netflix. I'm behind on all of the Marvel stuff on Netflix, so I am going to try and work on catching up on those. But here's what I've been watching so far on streaming. Uh, I watched Latin History for uh, Morons, effing morons, uh, in the actual special. It is John Leguizamo's latest one-man show. And for those who don't know, Leguizamo has, has basically, since he started out, been doing these wonderful one-man shows uh, probably one uh, every two or three years, and they're all excellent one man, sh- you know, one man shows. And you know, he's a, you know he's a great storyteller and he's a solid comedian. And this one deals specifically with him re- get, re- retelling how he was trying to show his son, uh, who is you know half, um, I believe he is Puerto Rican, so he's ha- you know basically half uh, Hispanic, I believe you know half Puerto Rican, half uh, Jewish, and he is trying to sh- tell his son, who you know who is being bullied in his private school, like look, don't look down on yourself. We've been wiped out, and he realizes all of Latin history has been wiped out of the history books, and he's trying to re kind of for himself as well find Latin heroes, not only for himself but for his son. And he he kind of retells uh, the history of the the Incan Empire, the Aztec Empire, the Mayan Empire, and all the cool stuff that uh, uh, Latinx people have, were able to do in his you know both not only their pre-Columbian history but also their post-Columbian history. Their you know the kind of stuff that they got to do later on. He kind of uh, talks about modern day, more modern day uh, Latinx people. Uh, by the at the end, but he focuses mainly on the pre, uh, pre-Columbian um, indigenous people and talking about all of this cool history that he has by by the virtue of being Hispanic. 
because he has such great ties, you know, because he has those ties to the indigenous people. And and it's it's a good one-man show. It's It definitely has a, an amazing message that he wants to tell. And the final monologue he gives uh, as his son is beautiful. But what this move what this special um suffers from is he will uh devolve into very childish like humor like there are points where he'll be like oh that he plays uh i think he plays moctezuma very effeminate so he's very say uh, oh honey this you know the well you know here you're the god quetzalcoatl and it's very childish and you know he he he, you know, he has a very archaic sort of uh, slang term, so he'll drop gay, he'll drop, uh, I think, I don't know if he drops fag or not, but yeah, he, and that, I don't mind that as much, I know sometimes you can't, uh, you can't always expect people to change their slang and their lingo, you know, overnight, so, I don't, it doesn't, I'm not going to call him out specifically on it, but the humor is very childish, it's a very, it, it is very, a, child, a very childish kind of retelling of uh, Latinx history and indigenous people's history. And I feel like a better comedian could add humor to it, whereas his humor is very, like, he'll devolve into uh, 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 Latinx stereotypes but and then also do, like, uh, stereotypical black voices. He's He emphasizes a lot of accent humor. And I feel like that's done because he doesn't really actually have a joke. And so he'll just be like, hey, just like this thing, am I right? And then he'll do a lame stereotype joke, and it's like, okay, dude, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, you got something else? You got an actual joke for us, or are you just going to do silly voices? So, nothing against him. He's usually a better... I think when he deals with more personal things, he's a, he's even better. But then when he does talk about his personal life, his you know the fact that he did, he's, he's in therapy during this time period... Uh, his troubles at home, his own sort of dealing with the, his, you know, his father leaving him at a young age, and the fact that he didn't really have any Latin heroes growing up. That's that's good stuff. But when he's trying to actually talk about actual history, he gets the points right. But then he'll kind of you know detour into weird, not funny jokes. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, I feel, I feel like that detracts from the overall message. But it's not a bad special. I think he's, when he deals with more personal issues, he's even better. And I do like that he wants to try and teach this more indigenous history, this lost history of the Latinx people. But it, 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 it gets lost in translation. Because I feel like a better comedian or a better historian, a better public speaker could do it even better. Um, I also have been catching up on season 22 of South Park. I'm not sure why. I really don't know why. Um, I kind of gave up on it after after the last couple of seasons because they haven't really added anything. Really, they don't really bring anything new. Um, like the like even this season, you've got like it's trying to be like oh uh, school shootings as a recurring theme of the thing, but it doesn't really do much of anything. It's just a background joke. That's continually happening. And it's like the first episode starts with Cartman trying to prove Token is let, isn't is letting him cheat because he didn't watch or like Black Panther. 
or something like that. Or like Cartman didn't like Black Panther, but it's not because he's just racist or anything. But uh, and it's it's a it's a lame lame uh, subplot. Uh, and then you know, the, like Randy has decided to become a pot farmer, and that takes a whole episode. And then I think personally, the best one is the Halloween episode because it doesn't follow with this overarching stupid story, whatever season-long story they're trying to do this time that's not very good. And, um, yeah, it, 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 like, there's a whole thing with, uh, the PC babies, where PC Principal, uh, had children with strong female, you know, strong female, Vice Principal, strong female, get, it's, it's, it's very lame, attempts at trying to be like look at us we're hitting all sides and it's like you don't have a joke there those aren't jokes these these aren't jokes these are just you being like look at us we're making fun of all sides that way we're equal opportunity offenders and it's like the, the sides aren't equal and the jokes you're telling aren't very good so what's the point the yeah south park has kind of outlived its usefulness as a commentary on society and even then, in retrospect, how good of a commentary was it? Because I feel like the people who are overly who praised it so much were people who weren't very uh, you know attuned to society, and so it's like a layman's attempt at being woke, for what you know for what it's worth. And yeah, so there are. I mean, it's not that there aren't good jokes in all of South Park. There were great jokes. There were great episodes, but this, these new seasons aren't. Are kind of especially since the fact that they they drop the episode count, and there aren't they aren't improving the episode quality. It's it really like the most recent episode as of this week was a, basically a weak ass apology to Al Gore. It's like, hey, Man Bear Pig was real all along, and so the whole episode devotes to Al Gore being a petty jerk about the fact that he was right the whole time, which wasn't the point. Al Gore knew he was right. He just wants people to get get his message. That was the whole thing. It's like, he's not petty about people not paying attention. Like, the whole problem with an, an inconvenient uh, sequel wasn't that, ha-ha, I was right. It was more like, look, they not only have we made long, you know, big strides against climate change after, the, after my first movie, there, is, there are major machinations going forth to actually enact real change but we are taking some steps back and it's then we have to make sure to combat that it wasn't a, it wasn't a himself he wasn't he wasn't even patting himself on the back it was more like pointing out that this is a problem and yeah i mean i, I he it's kind of hypocritical that he flies around in private jets and, and accepts academy awards for basically pointing out what every climate scientist has been trying to tell us for years yeah that that part is why he's not the best spokesman to speak out against speak out and you know uh, and trying to combat climate change, but I'm still glad he did. He, I'm still glad that he does. He's not some kind of loser like South Park tries to portray him as. Like I think back in the, I think back back when he, when an inconvenient truth first came out, uh, that they tried to paint him that he's a loser. He's trying to make up the like. Like what was the point? That now that we recognize that climate change is real, that oh. Al Gore is right along. Sorry, dude. Sorry, we made fun of you. Here's us continuing to make fun of you. 
it was a half-assed apology, and it didn't really amount to anything. And it was, and the only real thing was the underlying joke that everybody's playing Red Dead Redemption Two. That's it. And yeah, this news. I'm gonna. I'm holding off on the rest of the episodes for the season until the finale because I feel like it's better off trying to binge it than trying to watch it episode by episode per week because it's then you can just get the awfulness over with instead of what continuing the pain the long you know the pain until it's finally over and then the last couple of things i watched this weekend were uh all about hassan minaj uh first i started watching his new kind of political talk show but it's more it's more along the lines of a ted talk than a traditional like desk talk show so i compared more akin to samantha b's full uh full frontal than uh john oliver's uh, last week tonight, or um, uh, or the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Uh, it's more along the lines of him doing essentially a TED talk, but it's about you know the issues of the day. So um, the first episode was about um, what was it about? I know episode two was about um, Saudi Arabia, and then episode three, the one that just came out was about uh amazon and then the first episode was come on oil so it was about um oh no that's the new episode the as of this recording the newest episode is oil and he's talking about the oil industry and oil production and the consequences of you know the oil industry and what it's doing so okay no the first episode was saudi arabia and no the first two episodes were affirmative action in saudi arabia they premiered the same day and then he did Amazon last week, and the current episode is oil. So uh, he started with affirmative action in Saudi Arabia, and both episodes were phenomenal. He breaks down why you know the, the problems with people saying we don't need affirmative action anymore, you know, and people being like, oh, we need affirmative action for white people now, and it's like, nah, dude, nah, we still need affirmative action in place because we still got problems we never really solved. And then Saudi Arabia, and the thing is, he is, I believe, a Indian or Pakistani Muslim. Uh, well, he's the he is the son of, uh, I believe, I want to, I don't want to say Pakistan. I think he's from India. I don't know for sure. I don't want to speak. I don't want to misspeak. So basic, but basically, he is, you know, that he is around from either Pakistan or India, and he's a practicing Muslim, and. Um, or at least he was raised Muslim. I don't know if he can. I, I think he continues to practice. I don't know him person. I don't know specifically, but basically he. You know the fact that he is a Muslim American talking about you know, you know being very critical of Saudi Arabia in, in one of his in his second episode uh, or first depending on because um, it looks like it, in order it's Saudi Arabia then affirmative action on Amazon. But yeah, the fact that it was one of his first episodes for his brand new Netflix series where he breaks down these complex topics is about is is as a Muslim American being very critical of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the dude doesn't hold back. <laughs> and um yeah, he not only that, but he is genuinely like hilarious. He is one of the best comedians uh I, 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 was, I was trying to say comics, but I went to comedians. Uh yeah, he's one of the best comics working today and the patriot act shows that he's able to kind of carry this new almost millennial format um for uh political talk and co political satire and comedy and i'll have to watch oil in a bit after i record the episode because i haven't caught up yet 
But I'm once again, he is he's a he hits every nail on the head perfectly, and then he also adds in color commentary. Like I never heard of Alota before, and you know, for my uh, if there are any people who are listening who are know any people of Indian descent or who are from India or live in India. Yeah, I never heard of Alota before, and as soon as he described it to me, I'm like, can I has? I, I want that. I want that. I like it. I think that's better. I, I want it. Can I have that now? Can, can I have it? I want the thing. I mean, I would prefer, apparently, Lotas have, he described a, a more uh, traditional Lota, which is an urn. And then you splash the water. Basically, it's a, it's it's a pre it's a you know it's a bidet that predates plumbing. It's water it's water toilet paper, um, and I feel like I feel like even just the lota of just the the practice of running the water instead of wiping is automatically sounding better in my mind. Not to not to make it too dirty, uh, but I mean I'm learning more about my own you know about personal hygiene from a guy who's just being very harshly critical of Saudi Arabian politics. And I, and I like it. This is why I like Hassan Minhaj. The weird diversions he'll take and, you know, he'll make references to uncles and aunties, uh, in reference to sort of like, uh, Asian, uh, family, familial relations. And yet he, even if you aren't Asian, you will get the joke, because even you will have family members like that. So he's universal while being culturally uh, representative. So even by referring to something that's culturally significant to him and to his and to people within that group, people who are outside the group can still understand and appreciate and get the joke. And I think that's what works great is that he's able to deliver these jokes that are while they're being very. Uh, you're representative of who he is and who his people are and who his community is. Um, people who are outside the community will get the joke and can laugh at the joke without it being like negative or punching down. It's, it's very, it's very wholesome comedy in that way. And I think that's why he's the, currently one of the best comedians right now. And I hope Patriot Act continues on. Whereas the, uh, both the Chelsea Handler show and uh, the Michelle Wolf show and the um, Joe, and the Joel McHale show, none of them could really stick. Netflix is still struggling to keep a weekly format going, but I think Patriot Act could break the mold. I think more people could get into this, whereas Michelle Wolf's su- series kind of suffered from bad writing, um, and Joel McHale's was basically a retread of the soup. And I think people would much rather have just gotten more gotten the old episodes of the soup back. And didn't really, like it didn't really add anything new except the fact that they brought in Paul Feig because he's an executive producer and so he's a running gag in the show. But people were, I think that kind of thing is saved better for YouTube. I think if he wants to do that kind of thing, he'd be, he's better off being on YouTube than on Netflix. But I don't think he's willing to take that kind of pay cut. And then uh, I never watched the Chelsea Handler show, so I have no idea how, how good it was as a talk show. But I feel like what Hassan Minaj is doing with Patriot Act is wonderful and I want it to keep going. And then I watched his uh, Netflix special Homecoming King where you get to, and if you watch that as well, you get a more insight into his into his life and to his backstory cuz he basically gives you his life story and it's wonderful and touching and moving and it's also laden with these wonderful wholesome jokes. Like they're never mean Hassan Minaj is able to tell jokes that aren't mean-spirited. And 
and it's one and it's absolutely wonderful that he's able to do that. I keep saying wonderful because um oddly enough, uh he's kind of get making the rounds in uh the Facebook group I'm in for the podcast Wonderful. Shout out to uh Griffin and Rachel McElroy. <laughs> Um, I'm so far behind on that. I need to catch up on that too. But yeah, I think the nice and that's. But it's, it is nice to have a a hilarious, without being wholly mean spirited comedy out there. And Hassan Minaj is currently, I think, the best comedian in that regard. He's not punching down all the time. He's able to deliver these jokes by pointing out the foibles and the idiosyncrasies and kind of these sorts of differences while never being wholly mean-spirited about it. And then also having a message to bring that he wants to kind of point out these problems that we're facing as a society. So, yeah, I highly recommend both Patriot Act and Homecoming King. And I I think you all should um, be checking out Hassan Minhaj if he's coming to your town or something like that because he is a funny dude. I'm so glad he is kind of broken out from uh, The Daily Show and is doing his own thing now. And I think he's earned it because he's... Dude is, dude is, dude has a perfect comedic timing and joke style, joke, this joke style. And I'm so glad that he's doing so well. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to have a quick discussion on padding, 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 padding. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one, and alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. here to talk about padding and for those who aren't familiar with the term padding is exactly what it sounds like you know how they'll pad your mattress or they'll pad like a, a sports bra or training bra or they'll pad you know anything that's kind of used to make something look bigger or 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 you know kind of fill out the excess space that's padding it's and in film that happens when you have superfluous scenes or or actions that happen and that detract or at least don't um, propel the plot forward or even the character development and is only there to pad out the running time to at least either 90 minutes or to even push it further out. And I think between... Uh, like, I think every movie that I saw this weekend in theaters suffered from some form of padding. And, like, the Illuminations, the Grinch was the worst of it. But even Overlord did have problems where it was a little padded that it, where it didn't need to be. And I guess here's the thing. When it comes to filmmaking, scenes that develop... Not every scene has to be used to develop the plot or the characters. Obviously. Some scenes are there for comedic purposes. 
Some scenes are there for whatever exploitative purposes, horror, you'll use it for like gore jump scares, or for romance, you use it for sex scenes or uh, making out. Um, drama, you use to... Uh, drama is usually the one that you if, you, as, if it doesn't propel the plot or develop the characters, then it feels more superfluous. But for comedies and for kids' movies, there can be lenience. There's a lot more leniency to if the padding is necessary or not. Or if it even qualifies as padding, because sometimes it's not trying... It, it's, it's, even if it's not used to propel the plot forward, it's there for a specific purpose. But when it doesn't... But when the purpose it serves doesn't benefit the film, that's more in line when padding comes into play. And um, a good example, I think, is that the Lord of the Rings uh, original tr movie trilogy takes the takes the more essential plot points of the books and then fleshes out certain aspects to make it more cinematic. So it's not a direct adaptation of the books, which read a lot more like somebody's dissertation because we're dealing with an Oxford professor essentially creating his own um, fictional mythology. So it's understandable that you want, that it's not going to be, it's oddly enough, um, his most childish Writing The Hobbit is his most plot heavy, and even then, it will divert from the plot in order to be more like a fairy tale. And so, for the Lord of the Rings movies, Peter Jackson took parts from Tolkien's anthologies and from his, um, um, and from his, you know, from the ancillary writings in order to develop and round out these characters. That's why he added uh, Arwen to the to the plot and made her more prominent. That's why uh, he featured more stuff for, uh, for Faramir to do and to try to develop him more. Because otherwise you have these flat um, characters who kind of detract from the overall plot. And he wanted to create more character development. And yet, even he is not immune to, add it to uh, putting padding into his movies. And I feel like Two Towers is the one that suffers from it the most. The padding there is, it's, part of it serves as character development. You have the whole thing with Gollum fought, almost redeems himself. Uh, you have the whole bit with Faramir struggling to whether or not he wants to follow in his father's footsteps or be his own man. Um, so, but, so you have those parts that are good, that are good character development. But there are points where Two Towers feels padded out, mainly so that he can keep the continuity going uh, and have the the battle for Isengard, the battle for Helm's Deep, and uh, Sam and Frodo heading into Mordor happen simultaneously. That because I mean the books, the continuity is way more fluid. And it's hard to tell the timeline. Whereas here, uh, Peter Jackson wanted a definitive timeline for what happened, and so I think Return of the King also suffers a lot. Like the extended stuff. There is some character development. There are some interesting things, but there's a lot of padding in there as well. And then, you know, it's not Peter Jackson has done a lot. You know, has suffered a lot from padding out his movies, with not necessarily character or plot development, but with you know uh, his own little eccentricities. Like King Kong didn't need to be two and a half hours long, man. Let's be real. <laughs> and yeah, he, he he sadly has been that's been a problem. He's he suffered Hobbit specifically is padded out. It did not, you know, it had a um, love triangle that didn't go anywhere. That's padding. It had stuff with the dwarf, like it dropped 
stuff with the dwarves that didn't do anything that 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 was set up that didn't go anywhere that ultimately becomes padding and especially between uh dissolution of smog and battle of five armies there's so much padding that doesn't need to be there and it detracts from the trilogy because it didn't need to be a trilogy it could have easily just been a singular movie maybe two if you wanted to go that route and i feel like it was a bad choice on New Line's part to basically re- make a prequel tr- trilogy a la Star Wars. Um, so yeah, I, I don't begrudge Lord of the Rings' padding for the most part. Because a lot of it does isn't, you know, is only padding in the sense that it kind of draws out the movie instead of put propels. The, like that should be focusing on character growth or plot development. That shouldn't be taking these weird diversions unless it's Unless there's a purpose. We should have reasons for taking these detours. Whereas The Hobbit, I've come to realize, as much as I liked the returning to this world, it wasn't the same. And I've come to realize that it just, it's not the same trilogy as the first one. And it, and it ultimately detracts because there's so much that's unnecessary and doesn't add to the universe. It's just, it's a cash-in. And, it's, and I'm really sad that that's how it turned out. Because it could have easily been so much better. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of this week's episode, I want to talk about padding in regards to the Grinch, because if you take the Howard version and the Illumination version, there's a difference, once again, there's a difference between character development and, and trying to, uh, flesh out a character and trying to extend the plot forward versus padding. So with the Ron Howard version, most of the padding is humor. So I don't begrudge it for taking side trips for, you know, stopping along the way for jokes because it's attempting to, it's, it wants to be a comedy. And so it stops off for jokes. That's fine. It's all, but the problem is a lot of the jokes aren't really all that funny. There's a lot of butt humor for some reason. And that's, that, that really isn't that funny. And, um, yeah, it, uh, but it, for the most part, the characters, the, most of the extra stuff is is fleshing out Cindy Lou Who's family and making them the, the more three dimensional characters, uh, eh, two dimensional. Cindy Lou Who is really the only three dimensional character in the movie besides the Grinch, and then the flesh out the Grinch's backstory and then give him a sexy lo- Who love interest because of course why not? Sorry, Christine. Oh, poor Christine Baranski. She's been relegated to uh, Jessica Rabbit. Jessica Rabbit Who. <laughs> And uh, the Grinch love interest. Uh, she's fun- she's really funny. Is a sad thing, but all they do is make her a sex pot in that movie. Um, and yeah, they and, and the fleshing out of like the satire and trying to make it like the incompetent mayor and the greed and the excess. And then by the time the end comes, happens you know the mayor's like see what happens you know cynical cynical you know greed 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 we need to celebrate christmas we need our things and then it takes um what's his name uh who plays the dad in uh the grinch who's the dad in that i feel like i know him uh jeffrey tambor christine baranski bill Irwin. huh Bill Irwin, known for Rachel Getting Married, Tars on Interstellar, Mr. Leeds in Lady in the Water. And then apparently he was on the TV show Legion and Peter, Dr. Peter Lindstrom in SVU. 
Sleepy Hollow. So I don't really know him that well, but he kind of reminds me of um, Peter Scolari or, uh, or um, I can't remember his name, uh, the dad from uh, Rick Moranis. Yeah, the dad from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Kind of reminds me a bit of Rick Moranis or uh, even David Hyde Pierce. But yeah, he uh, is the one, kind of the one who finally, who kind of tells off the mayor and like, no, nah, man, we didn't need all this stuff. And that's what my daughter's been trying to tell us the whole time. Or we've been neglecting that message. So yeah, it's it's kind of it kind of it it gets there, but it's not really well earned. It isn't really all that well earned, sadly. Um, and then compare that to the Illumination version, which fl- tries to flesh out the Grinch's backstory, but also sands off all of his edges. He's not a miser. He's not a miserable character. He's a lonely hipster who stays by himself. And I say, and you know, once again, I'm not trying to say hip, you know, I'm not tr- misusing the term hip, like, he's just like, hmm, the hues in their Christmas, Blah. He's, you know, he's, he's, he, he, it seems more like he's going against Whoville in the Christmas because he, you know, he, and like, they reveal it's because he was, he, you know, he had a bad childhood, but it never comes off like, like he feels, it doesn't even feel like a, ha- a wholehearted stealing of Christmas, and the full and the and the hearts growing three sizes doesn't feel earned in the illumination version because they don't really give a well defined reason for why the Grinch is who he is. So when he finally has has a change of heart, it doesn't feel earned. Um, and then meanwhile, Cindy Lou Who, while in the Howard version, is the kind of voice of innocence and the voice of reason in all of this chaos. Here, she is all three daughters from Despicable Me. That's all she... Her fleshing out is turning her into a tomboyish... Uh, specifically, Edith. It's Edith's character model. And, literally, it is Edith's character model. Tell me that's not Edith's character model. And if you t- tell me that, you're a filthy liar. But then her... Her, but then it's also part of Edith's personality as well, and it doesn't. We, we don't really get this childhood innocence from because we get this precociousness and the whole thing of like, oh, she's just he's, she's got a hardworking single mom played by a barely recognizable Rashida Jones. Like, why is Rashida Jones here? She doesn't add anything to the character. It's just generic mom voice. And then, yeah, the Cindy, Cindy Lou, whose actress sounds like she's twice as old as the character is supposed to be. When her voice sounds so out of place, it's really awkward. And then it, she just becomes best friends with the Grinch, just because. Whereas, even in the Howard version, they established that Cindy Lou Who continues to try and help out the Grinch. That's why they end up being friends. They develop the friendship. Even the Howard version got that point. Even, but this movie can't even bother to do that. So yeah, a lot of the Illumination uh, movie suffers from padding, because it throws in superfluous characters that don't add anything to the plot and are only there to be cute little distractions and to sell plushies. Let's be honest. The whole reason that Reindeer is there to sell plushies. Tell me he's not there for, for plushies. Uh, um, yeah, so... I, but I, and I think a better another good kind of example of the difference between padding and development would be the Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs movies. The original movie uh, by Lord and Miller took a bare-bones storyline that was mainly just like a silly kid's book about, oh, here's a town where all the all the weather is food. And then 
it fleshed it out by creating its own unique group of characters. And everything that happens uh, is either there for comedic purposes, but it's funny, but it's genuinely funny and heartfelt, or it's there to develop um, the characters, the, you know, Finn, I think Finn, uh, or, you know, all the characters, even the, you know, the, the off, uh, Mr. T's officer character, uh, the dad, uh, and, you know, so all of these characters are, get the, get this development and they're, you know, in this movie dedicated to them. And then you compare that to the sequel where Lord and Miller weren't involved and you can tell that there wasn't a real story to be had there. They just decided to make a movie where they padded it out with food puns and sight gags and slapstick humor. There isn't a story there, so they pad out the runtime with these, with, with you know, just jokes. And I guess that's, I mean, it's a comedy, so if the jokes work, then it's not a problem. But story-wise, it, do, it definitely feels like it wasn't as well thought out as the original. And I feel like that's kind of the difference. Padding doesn't, padding may be there to, to you know, lengthen a movie, but as long as, you know, if it, as long as it doesn't detract from the movie, it's not a problem. So padding isn't inherently bad, but with people like Illumination or a lot of kids, you know, this happens a lot in kids' movies where they throw in stuff to just lengthen the movie because it can't be, it, you know, they're just trying to get it to 90 minutes. I think The Grinch just came in barely under 90 minutes. And it, 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 it's a problem a lot in kids' movies and comedies. But you don't really notice it as much because the padding there is part of the genre. But at the same time, you can have padding that you can have, you know, parts, you know, jokes and all of this stuff, but have it flow with the plot and have it help develop the characters. Otherwise, why is it even there? And, and you know, why can't you just cut that? It doesn't add anything to it to the movie. And I feel like that's the major issue with padding. Is this? Is if you can cut it out and it keeps the movie and it has the movie going faster and it you know keeps the movie going, then it's unnecessary. And good editors know when to cut padding and when to put in padding. So padding isn't bad, but when most of your movie relies on padding, like movies like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too, then that's where you find the problem. You know, the emoji movie is another instance of like. We don't have anything to do here, so it's just pad out the movie with sight gags and puns and jokes. So, once again, padding isn't bad, but if you rely too much on it, then you don't have a movie, you just have padding. So, uh, yeah, that about uh, does it for the main talking point. So, let's take a look back at the weekend with the box office report. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right, all of, all three of our new releases premiered in the top seven. So we we are uh, we're our biggest dropouts are Venom, Halloween, and Smallfoot. All of them dropped out of the top seven, and then uh, the Hate You Give managed to stay in the top ten. But yeah, everything else is already on its way out. Uh, so starting off at number seven, we've got Nobody's Fool, and that brought in six point five million dollars this weekend, bringing its total up to twenty four point two million dollars. And with a little bit extra from the foreign markets, its total uh, two week gross is twenty four and a half million dollars. 
So it cost $19 million to make, so it made back its budget. Now it just have to make, now if it can uh, jump over into uh, the $40 million range, it can start making some real money back and it can, and it can be considered a profit. So yeah, that, this is kind of where um, low budget movies tend to thrive is when you can make back the budget really easily. You don't have to be a runaway success like Halloween. As long as you can just keep audiences coming back, you're good. Uh, next up, number four uh, for last week is dropped down to number six, and that's A Star is Born, which brought in $8 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to $178 million, and, a, and, and its worldwide total after, I think, four weeks now? Six weeks in, the, in, the, in, the, in theaters is $322 million. Congratulations, guys, you did it. Uh, next up is a, is a premiere, The Girl of the Dragon Tattoo Story, uh, The Girl of the Spider Spider. Such a stupid name! Why? Why is that name? Uh, anyway, uh, so op- it opened up domestically with $8 million and only doubled that worldwide. So the foreign markets only doubled the American markets. So it's a worldwide opening weekend of $16 million. This movie cost $43 million to make. Please keep this low. Don't go back to see this. Please let this die. I want this to bomb. It deserves it. It's awful. I want them to go back and try again. Because this is obviously not a good story. This is obviously not a good attempt to continue the Millennium series. And also drop the whole dragon tattoo thing. That's not what it's called, you assholes. Anyway. uh, Next up, number two from last week is dropped down to number four. That is The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, brought in $9.5 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to $35.2 million. And the foreign markets um, brought in double that. So our worldwide uh, gross after two weekends is $96.6 million. Still not quite enough to make back its budget. I don't think it'll be a complete bomb, but I don't think it's going to... It's definitely not selling as well as the other live-action Disney movies have been, so... I think this is a sign that this is going to be a sign to Bob Iger that we need to only remake recognizable properties because people aren't going to our other stuff. And that's kind of sad. Anyway, uh, number three, premiering at number three this weekend is Overlord, uh, which brought in $10.1 million domestically and about the same for, in the foreign market. So it opened up with a $19 million, uh, $19.3 million opening weekend. Oh, wow. Cost $38 million to make. Oof. Uh, I, I, I feel like people are going to go back and see this, though. Uh, so I hope it make, manages to make back its money uh, over the next coming weeks because I, it really is the best thing to come out this weekend. It is a wonderful exploitation movie. So if you get the chance, go check it out. Go support this movie because everyone worked really hard in it and it's, and it's really, really well made. Uh, number two this weekend uh, was last week's number one, uh, which is Bohemian Rhapsody, bringing in $30.8 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $100 million, and foreign, and combined with the foreign markets, brings its two-week gross up to $285 million. So, yeah, this movie is also a runaway success. And I, once again, I feel like it's just because of the Queen soundtrack. It completely disregards the Queen story. But, hey, people got their Queen music, so they're happy. I think it just goes to show that people want their Queen. People love Queen. So, even if it's not a good movie, as long as they got Queen, they're happy. 
And then, premiering at number one, to the shock of no one, is Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, which brought in $66 million. And then, combined with the foreign markets, it already made back its budget of $75 million by by opening to $78.7 million. So, this is already on its way to be another success for Illumination. And this is actually one of their more expensive movies, and yet it still looks cheap! God, Illumination, why are you... Anyway... Yeah, that's that's the week, a box office report this weekend. Um, nothing really else to add, although they, we are seeing some gains uh, for indie stuff uh, like Beautiful Boy and Can You Ever Forgive Me as they get added to more theaters. Uh, we'll see if they those come into my area, but yeah, that's uh, that's this weekend. So with this weekend, uh, with, with with the past over with, let's look ahead to the future in this week's trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. This next weekend's going to be packed too because first off, we've got the continuation of the Wizarding World uh, franchise with Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And if in case you missed it, my Twitter was abuzz with some Harry Potter head really digging into me for not being excited about this movie and how it explains so many of these minutiae about the franchise. And it's like, I, I didn't want Harry Potter light. I didn't want the pre, I didn't want Harry Potter, Star Wars prequels. And that's exactly what it seems like we're getting. So we'll see if it's just the marketing. It could just be bad trailer editing for all I know. But yeah. Um, and in doing so this, I'm actually going to spend this week catching up on the entire Harry Potter franchise I think that's going to be our talking point for next week. Um, so yeah, but for right now, let's take a look at the trailer for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Biggest crime being he's a spouse-abusing piece of... Anyway. Address. What's that? A safe house in Paris. Also, it's really nice that you established that uh, Dumbledore is gay, and yet you never take the time to actually show him being gay now that you've introduced him into the prequels. Anyway! It's almost like he she only wants brownie points. My sisters. The clock is ticking fast. I don't know. I think it's just personal personally for me. I nothing I mean Johnny Depp is already kind of sounding like he's not to take our rightful place. That's 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 another weird thing. The fact that Nagini this whole time was a woman uh shapeshifter. Join me. Die. <sighs> worlds have been at peace for over a century. Grindelwald wants to see that peace destroyed. What does this have to do with Snoot Scamander writing a field guide to magical creatures? This is why I don't. This is why I, I don't like this. I'll, I'll get into that afterwards. Apparently, the mirror of Eris said shows that Dumbledore wants to bone J- Johnny Depp, but I can't say I blame him even in this movie. He'll be fine. Oh, by the way, we completely undid uh, the, the ending of the last movie because we realized we screwed that up. Nice writing there, J.K. You simply ask, is the thing right? The future will change. 
forever. To pick a side. Oh, hi, Ezra Miller. What are you going to do? Nothing to something. Mute. You never met a monster you couldn't love. Let's take him. Oh, yeah, and I think we actually get uh, young uh, Tom Riddle in this movie as well. So that'll be fun. This is legit the Star Wars prequels, but with Harry Potter. Tell me it's not. Tell me it's not. That's your I think that might have been the best moment of my life. <sighs> anyway, yes. Um... I brought this up on my fa- on my social media. If you follow me on Twitter, I bring this up any time the trailer comes on. I feel like this was a complete misstep. I think I don't know if it was ever really established that Newt Scamander was a hero in the same vein as Harry Potter, but I think that was a bad 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 choice uh, to go with the character. I feel like what it should have done was have Newt Scamander be the Wizarding World's equivalent to David Attenborough. I feel like having him going around the world chronicling these magical creatures and then him at, you know, ultimately ending up like, here's the thing. Wouldn't it be more interesting instead of establishing more timeline stuff for the UK Harry Potter world? Wouldn't it be more interesting if he ended up in, like, South America and it turns out, like, there's an indigenous tribe of magic users down there and they have to deal with uh, colonial wizards and the, cult and the clashing there? Or what if, uh, you know, what if they went to Africa and he found, like, some mythical African beasts and, it's, and they're being hunted by colonial wizards or something? There are so many interesting things you could do with a naturalist in the wizarding world and yet it's just Harry Potter prequels. Harry Potter Star Wars prequels. We did the... There is yet to be a prequel trilogy that really worked. It didn't work for Star Wars. It didn't work for The Lord of the Rings. It's not working for Harry Potter. The only time I've ever seen a prequel work was when it was in conjunction to a sequel. The the best prequel was half of The Godfather Part 2. That's it. We've yet to see a prequel that didn't feel like, hey... We're pointing out this thing, so when you rewatch it and the prequel is in order with the new series, you get that reference. Anyway, with so I got that looking forward to. Although I will rewatch the Harry Potter franchise and kind of give my whole thoughts on that next week, so look forward to that. Next up, we have from the director of Daddy's Home. More Mark Wahlberg comedy, Mackie Mack's back with Instant Family. I love what you two are doing with this house, but what are you going to do with five bedrooms? You guys are obviously never having kids. What was that look? I did not do a look. You're doing a look right now. There's no look. Have a good fight, guys. Rose Byrne's supposed to be funny. Why is she not? How did you make Rose Byrne not funny? Taking foster kids are really special. The kind of people who volunteer when it's not even a holiday. We don't even volunteer on a holiday. Oh my god, I'm Maki Mack. If I talk like this, maybe people will find me funny. Oh my god. Oh, Octavia Spencer. But they're teenagers, okay? They use drugs and they watch people playing video games on YouTube. We're not equipped for any of that. Fun fact, I'm actually thinking of starting a Let's Play channel with my nephew. What? Yeah, let's go back to this nonsense. Don't give it another thought. Bye-bye. Who's that? Lizzie comes with two younger siblings. Three kids? Too much. Oh, oh my God. God. They're adorable. Why would you show Who's us the that? girl That's in this? She's kind of cute. Here we are. Make yourself at home because you're at home. Do you like the Cougars? Oh, I'm more of a Lakers fan. Oh, no. You hit me because... 
Isabella Monet. They were smart for trading Oh, that's right. She is with Marky Mark in Last Night. That's who that chick is. And she's going to be Dora and Dora the Explorer. Ugh. This girl's not getting great work. And Tignataro's actually funny. Why is she here? I don't get why a teenager's playing Dora the Explorer. Like, wouldn't you just make it a kid? And that's a point? So that's one of those weird things where it's like, I think Kyle Schumer do a thing where it's like teenage Dora the Explorer. And that and so they decided to make that the movie? Why is that? Ugh. God, this is so lame. Man, this is so lame. Look at what this boy texted her. Is this that kid, Jacob? Hey, I saw in the picture you sent her, Jacob. You're lucky I'll end your life right now, Carrot Top. We're going to call your mom. You're going down today. So what do you think of that, Jacob? My name is not Jacob. What? Okay. Oh, hey, something realistic. Parents actually getting arrested for assaulting, a t- for assaulting and accosting a teenager at school. Uh, I just want this to be over. Next weekend is not going to be a good one. I'm not going to... This is so lame. Anyway, thankfully, we got good things to look forward to, actually, because we've got the new Steve McQueen movie, Widows. So excited. Let's check it out. Who's the co-writer of this? Jillian? That's right. Jillian Flynn, the writer of Gone Girl. What did you choose not to know? Get that swirl going on. This is about my life. Yeah, they don't mention it in the marketing, but yeah, John Barenthal is uh, one of the Robert, one of the husbands who dies in this as well. Comes about yours. Ooh, the gangsters in this look so bad. Like it's Daniel Kaluuya and somebody else. I I don't recognize. I'll point them out in the when they announce the cast at the end. But yeah, they don't look necessarily intimidating, but they play it so well. Yeah, like that. Oh, that shot of Daniel Kaluuya. Like, howdy. I need help. I don't see what I can do. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. Oh, yeah, Kaluuya looks like he's full-on crazy in this movie. I can't wait to see him in action. Oh, yeah, Robert Duvall's in this, too. Let's hope so. This November. This is for guns. Guns? From where? Figure it out. If this whole thing goes wrong, I want to I'm not familiar with who the, the white girl is. Michelle Rodriguez, you got great. Uh, Cynthia Aravan is proving to be good. Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, I don't know her. Uh, Cynthia Aravo, yep, Colin Farrell, Brian Tyree Henry, that's who that is. Uh, David Kaluuya, Jackie Weaver, Robert Duvall, and Liam Neeson. Also, John Barenthal's on this. Or is this being who we are? Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. Yeah! Yeah! So pumped! 
Hans Zimmer. Ooh, nice. Yeah, this movie's got a great pedigree. Steve McQueen, Gillian Flynn, uh, Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, um, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, let me see. Brian Tyree Henry. And da, 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 there he is. Um, what do I know him from? I know him from something. I just don't remember off the top of my this is That's it. This is us, Atlanta. He was just in Hotel Artemis as the brother. That's it. Um, so, yeah, he, he's, he, he looks great as sort of the main villain, where, while Kaluuya seems to be his henchman. That looks great. Um, who else we got? They don't mention uh, Manuel Garcia Rufo. Ralfo? I think Ralfo. Rulfo. Okay. Manuel Garcia Rulfo, uh, who was... Um, Benjamino Marquez and Vasquez. Uh, he was Benjamino Marquez on Murder on the Orient Express. He was also in Sicario Day of the Soldado as Gallo. Uh, and Vasquez in the, Magnif- and the Magnificent Seven. He's going to be Michelle Rodriguez's husband. And then I forget who... I don't... Let me see who... Uh, yeah. Liam Neeson as, the, as, the, as Viola Day was his husband and the, and the leader. John Bernthal. John, Ber- yep, John Bernthal is in this. Uh, Manuel Garcia Rolfo, and then looks like Coburn Goss is the other. Hu- I think that's the other husband, unless he's one. Unless he plays a kid, Coburn Goss, uh, best known as Father Leone in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, and then Doctor Frank DeMassa in The Mob Doctor. Um, bunch of TV stuff. It looks like. So he seems to be mainly a TV actor, although he, you know, had a gig in uh, the DC EU. Um, so he seems to be the other husband. Um, hi, Kitty. But, but yeah, Elizabeth Debicki, who's that? I'm not familiar. Carrie Coon. Ooh, Carrie Coon. Homegirl Carrie Coon is in this. Nice. Uh, but Elizabeth Debicki, uh, Aisha from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and then Jordan Baker in The Great Gatsby. Victoria and the Man from Uncle, but okay, Aisha from Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, okay, so I I kind of know her. Mopsy in Peter Rabbit as well, and then a voice in Valerian. Oof, not great stuff. But okay, so that's who I know. That's who she is. So I'm I'm not wholly unfamiliar with her. I'm just not familiar with her enough. Uh, so yeah, yeah, great cast. Uh, great. Steve McQueen and Gillian Flynn wrote the script. Steve McQueen's directing. It already looks like it's getting rave reviews. I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. I've been excited for this one as soon as I heard about it. And then lastly, we've got an expanding wide. There's no guarantee I'll see this in theaters, but this one is expanding wide. We've got A Private War, uh, which features Rosamund Pike as a, uh, as a war correspondent. Let's take, it, let's take a look. Okay, so yeah, she traveled to the most dangerous places on Earth to risk her life for the truth. Oof. Ladies and gentlemen, Foreign Correspondent of the Year, Marie Colton. Based on a true story. I have to look into how based, how true it is. Treasure Island. It's right. She, I'm wondering. I, I wonder if the actual uh, correspondent has to live with an eye patch as well. I can't stop thinking about it. Unless you go crazy, it's not something you get used to. Yeah, Rosamund Pike looks amazing in this. They are not wounded or killed like ordinary people. 
Our mission is to speak the truth. Stanley Tucci! The Tooch! to sink your country in the Civil War. Looks like she's talking to Gaddafi. What happened? They've opened fire on journalists. If the government catches you, they'll kill you. I have nightmares every night. You've seen more war than most soldiers. You have to take it seriously. Ooh, the Academy Award winning direct nominated director of Cartel Land. I think that's a documentary. To see it from myself. Because you're addicted to it. And producer of the town Sakari on Wind River. If you use the sat phone, those drones will know where we are. We don't have time! No one in their right mind would do what you do. The greatest weapon. She needs to get the hell out of there. Is the truth. Back. We will die if we go back. Rosamund Pike. I want people to know your story. Jamie Dornan. God-given talent for making people stop and care. Stan Tucci. I see it, so you don't have to. If you lose your conviction, what hope do the rest of us have? Maybe I would have liked a more normal life. Maybe I just don't know how a private war Ooh, this is a real contender for best uh actress for rosamund pike yeah i i i i'm of two minds part of me is like oh we get to experience wars in the middle east from the point of view of a white chick fantastic but it's not like this isn't based on a an actual person either you know it'd be one thing if this wasn't a real person but uh this is you know this is telling a woman's life story and this is stuff that actually happened to her so um Marie Colvin. Uh, so I have to look into the, her and see how much of this is taking from her life and how much is artistic license. Um, Tom Hollander is in this too, it looks like. Uh, not recognizing a lot of people. But yeah, there is a guy playing Gaddafi. So that so I wasn't mistaken. But yeah, it, it really... Uh, and then let me take a look at that cartel land. Matthew Heineman. Uh, Escape Fire, City of Ghosts, The Trade, The Cartel. Yeah, this guy's a this guy's a uh, producer and director for um, mainly documentaries. Cartel Land, The Third Man, City of Ghosts. All these are wartime documentaries. This is his first real fictional or you know narrative driven film. He's been a he's a do- been a documentarian for so long, so it'll be interesting. Um, I'm I'll, I'm I'm hoping this is going to be good. Um, I mean, he's he's done so well documenting actual uh, battle scenes and war time and you know and war footage that recreating it probably won't be as big of an issue for him uh, since he's seen the real thing and he'll probably have more of a realistic take to it. Uh, but yeah, I'm interested in that. I'm hoping it plays near me. It says expanding wide on the numbers dot com, so we'll see if it ends up playing near me. If not, um, you know, I've got plenty of Harry Potter to talk about, so there's that. And that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to whitelist us on your ad blocker and check out and and favorite the webpage. And that way you can check out all of our fine programming. We've got a new Living in the Stacks episode coming out tomorrow. We've got all all of Donna's stuff on there. Uh, I think Van is still doing the... um, the odd odd Vegas 
podcast. And if you yourself host a podcast and would like to be featured on our network, uh, contact us at gumbicatnetworks at gmail dot com, and we'll get back to you and see if we can't add you to the network. We would love to expand our hosts and make this network grow larger and expand our outreach. So you know, don't be afraid to, to you know to share your stuff with us. And then, uh, if you're not on, if you don't want to listen to, through the browser, you can find us on your various podcast providers. We're on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher. So wherever you listen to podcasts, be, you know, you'll, if you find us, um, you know, search for Popcorn Junkie, and you'll see my orange bug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movie. And and as long as it's over a hundred episodes, you're in good hands. And you know, uh, be sure to uh, subscribe, like. Um, like, comment, and subscribe. No, subscribe, give it a five-star rating and review, and tell people that you like the podcast and that they should check it out, too. Uh, if you want to share us on social media, our social media home is at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are coming out from. And then um, you can follow me on Twitter at cornjunkiepod. That's where I'm more interactive. I'm probably going to end up doing a... Um, I might end up doing... I'm not sure. I'm going to have to fit it. I, I, I'm probably going to have to watch a couple of the Harry Potters while I'm at work. So that, uh, so that I, so that I can get it in, in time. Cause I'm dealing with eight movie. I'm dealing with nine movies, each about two hours long. There's no way I can do this while after work. I'm going to have to do this. All, you know, I have to do it probably like three a day, uh, in order to be ready for, uh, for, um, uh, fantastic beasts when it comes out. And then, uh, yeah. So but when I'm at home and I can, I'm, a, I'm more freely able to do it. You can follow me on Twitter at in, at Corn Junkie Pod, and you can keep, you know see how see my thoughts on uh, Harry Potter as I'm watching it in the lead up to Fantastic Beasts too. And then uh, I'm on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. I'm not as active on there. I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure out what all I need, what I can do for that. And then of course you can find me on Stardust. Uh, Popcorn Junkie on Stardust, and there you'll find my rea- initial reactions to a movie uh, in the lead-up to a podcast. And then uh, you can also check out so many other great creators on Stardust. Uh, the Internet's other John Bailey, Epic Voice Guy, is on there. Uh, he does the voice of the Honest Trailers, and he is the king of Stardust as far as I'm concerned. He does the best re- reactions and reviews. If you're going to watch anybody on Stardust, watch him. He is the best. And then, of course, you've got the guys over at Double Toasted. You've got uh, the Schmoes No guys. You've got a couple uh, people like Kaylin um, Sacedo, Sacerdo, uh, uh, Mars Girl uh, is on there. And she hasn't been as active, sadly. But, you know, and then, of course, you can also find, you know, independent people. You, you know, check out what movies you want to see and see other people's reactions. And then you can follow those new people as well. So check out all the cool people over on Stardust and share your own reactions as well. Um yeah, so download start the Stardust app for your phone, and you know follow me at Popcorn Junkie. Follow all all kinds of cool people there, and share your own reactions. We're having fun there. You should too. And then, if there's anything else you want to say uh, to the podcast, if there's any corrections you want to get, you want me to make, if there's any sort of feedback you want to give, if there's some, if you have your own uh, reactions and thoughts on uh, the movies I reviewed this week, and you know, if there's anything else you want to bring up, uh, make sure that you list it in the message that you want this read out on the air. Otherwise, I'll only reference it. Uh, but, yeah, if you want me to read out the, the message as is, let me know in the body of the message. And then um, 
and then I'll get, you know, that can, I'd love to have an audience feedback section. It lets me know that people are paying attention to the podcast. And yeah, share your thoughts on what I talked about. Did you see it too? What did you think? Uh, did you disagree? Did you agree? What were your thoughts? Did you have a difference of opinion? Did you not like it, but for a different reason? Uh, if I made a mistake, make sure to correct me. I want to correct, I want to be honest and true. I don't want to misrepresent anything. And if I mess up, I want people to let me know. And, uh, yeah, so I send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And, uh, oof, <laughs> we're reaching the end of the year now. So, ooh, boy, we're going to, we're just going to get a whole metric buttload of stuff coming up. Really not looking forward to next week. Just so much work for so little payoff. <laughs>20s, 23 in the Girl of the Dragon Tattoo. This would take place three years in the future. They... What? I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a thing. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? He's crying because he hears me complaining about the movie. You know, he wants... You know, she wants an... I don't know. He... What? I'm talking about Jacqueline Wagasamo. Why why you do these things to me? If what do you want? What do you want? Wanna come up? Wanna come up? Oh I gotta take care of the kitty. <laughs>